Over the course of 16 years, that went from me helping out my mates with mushrooms to me having been the biggest magic mushroom dealer in Sydney and huge market. And I was, I had a bit of a monopoly, to be honest, because no one could really get them other than through me. Welcome back to Motive and Method. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Dr. Xanthi Mallet. On last week's episode, we talked to Andrew Hamilton, an interesting guy, a court on blur pizza chef, a drug dealer by his own admission, a guy who went to jail, a guy who got out of jail and is now carving a future for himself, a very interesting dude. And in today's episode, we're going to really take a deep dive into the prison system more generally. So we heard obviously about Andrew's experiences of prison and the impact it had on him and ultimately how he has rehabilitated and changed his life as a you know as a result of his experiences and having come out but we're going to look at it on a broader in a broader sense and how the prison system is currently organized how who those who've been through the system have been perceived by the public and are treated by the public when they get out and explore the opportunities for rehabilitation for life after incarceration. It's a very difficult road for these guys. I know I've seen thousands of them. Years ago, I worked with the New South Wales Department of Corrective Services. I was a psychologist based at Parramatta Jail. It was in the wake of the Royal Commission into prisons, so we were given a lot of scope to develop programs. And one of the more exciting programs I became involved in was the special care unit at Long Bay. The special care unit was a therapeutic community within the prison at Long Bay Jail. And it was based on the Grendon uh, program in Buckinghamshire in the UK, a therapeutic community where prisoners had democratic rights. They would vote on their treatment, they'd vote on what went on. And it also involved the support of prison officers. So it was a completely different culture where prisoners and prison officers had to work in a collaborative way to get things done. And so my involvement centred around the recruitment and training with others, other psychologists and prison staff of prison officers who wanted to become involved in the program. And I can tell you there was a conga line of blokes lining up to get into this particular program, more applicants than we were able to recruit, which I thought said a lot too, that Underneath the facade of being a hard prison officer, there were a lot of them that wanted actually to do good. They wanted to help and they wanted stimulation in terms of uh, their job and so on. So we recruited these people and then we spent a fair period of time, it was actually out at Westmead Hospital, training these guys on all aspects of communication, basic counselling, psychotherapy, recognising pathology when it erupted. We weren't training them to be psychologists, but to work as adjunct psychologists in the community that we established. All good so far, but the special care unit was a prison within a prison. It was a wing in the old Metropolitan Remand Centre. And the problem was the prison officers, to go to work each day, had to go through the main jail gate to get to the next jail. And what we were finding was that those guys were being significantly undermined by the attitude of the old guard prison officers, called them weak, called them crim lovers and all the rest of it. It had a big impact on their morale because there was an absolute culture clash all within the one environment. Fascinating program though. So are we saying that the the old guard staff were more punitive in their approach? So they didn't believe in this 
therapeutic community, they thought that this was not how prisons should function? That's correct. It's a problem that I've noticed over the years, perhaps less so now. I mean, my view has always been the punishment is the deprivation of liberty, the humiliation, the opprobrium when you go to jail. But the attitude of a lot of these people, particularly back then, was that's just the start. You, you have the deprivation of liberty, but we're here to punish you as well, to make life as difficult as possible for you in the misguided belief that you won't come back to jail. Of course, the paradox was it was more likely to make them come back to jail because they were so brutalised and there's been a lot written about that over the years. Certainly the old Grafton jail where prisoners were routinely beaten up when they arrived by a reception committee of prison officers. So my view, I think it's a view shared by many, is prison is the punishment. You're not there to be punished in addition, unless, of course, you transgress the rules, but that's a different proposition. And certainly it's not for prison officers to be deciding on what punishments people should be receiving. I think that's problematic when there's that abuse of power and they're making those decisions like who gets punished for what and it's their role to kind of act for the courts, as it were, when when they're not, in fact, in well, that position. Well, I, I think that's right and it's very capricious and subjective. So they may have people that they're overseeing that they don't like for no rational reason, they just don't like them and they make it difficult mm. for them. We see this beyond jails, of course, of course but yeah. it's more intense, more acute when a person's liberty is de uh, deprived and they don't have access to proper justice in those situations. Yeah. I do genuinely hope that that punitive approach is changing though. And certainly with the students we work with at the University of Newcastle, you know, social justice underpins everything we do from, you know, the moment the students arrive and it's all about seeing um, offenders as individuals, not making excuses for things that they've done, but trying to understand why people commit crimes under certain circumstances, who they might select as victims, what the offender's background may be and what impact that may have had on them. And in essence, seeing them more as an individual so that we can learn and hopefully reduce some of the harms that are caused to the victims, but also break those cycles of offending, recidivism, especially in communities that are already disadvantaged because we do know that those communities, low SES, people from with low educational status, some minority communities are preferentially targeted and those who are already disadvantaged in the community are further disadvantaged by coming into contact with the criminal justice system. So the first point of contact would be the police, then the courts, and the prisons, et cetera. And so it's really understanding those patterns. And I hope that by instilling an essence of social justice and understanding and sympathy for, you know, as I said, not making excuses, but trying to understand these people and what their needs are, if we can bring up the next generation who will be working in the criminal justice system, including corrections, and they take that approach, then I'm hoping we can prevent some of this abuse of power that we see in the prison system. How many of your students are prison officers, police officers, officers of the court? 
Oh, a lot. So, yeah. so a significant number of the students that go through the University of Newcastle criminology courses have gone on already and are now working in community corrections. Many want to join the police. They can also study psychology or law with our programme. So lots of them go on to work in various areas of the criminal justice system. So I'm hoping now, because the course has been running for few years, since 2017, I'm hoping it is now having an impact with that next generation of change makers who are going out into those communities, criminal justice communities and settings, and really making a difference and changing some of those more negative cultures for a more positive approach. So it's a, it's a work in progress. And certainly decades ago, I used to lecture prison officers and police at RMIT and other universities where we would talk about the issues you're talking about. And they were getting the skills, they were getting the education, but what struck me underneath all that was they clearly had a motivation to do it. They wanted to learn and I think quite genuinely with a lot of them, it wasn't just a career move, they wanted to be positive agents of change. And I think progress is occurring but then you still hear stories of brutality in jail and uh, brutality doesn't lend itself to uh, people being rehabilitated. Now, and rehabilitation is so important. I agree with you that the deprivation of liberty is the punishment. And for me, prisons or the corrective system should be about, where possible, rehabilitation. Obviously, the community needs to be protected from violent offenders. There has to be an element of punishment. People have to, you know, serve a punishment for their crime. And there's obviously all sorts of ways in which that can express. But yeah, it's it has to be about rehabilitation, not only for the individual, but so that when they are released back into the community, they are no longer going to commit offences and cause more problems. And it's about community pre- protection. So whenever we have an election, there's always going to be that tough on crime rhetoric. You know, it's always about, you know, we're going to do more to, to you know, to punish criminals. You know, we're seeing that discussion at the moment around Queensland because they've got a particular problem with youth crime. But we know that punishment doesn't work. We know that simply locking people up doesn't work. And that's even more problematic when we're talking about youth. That is not the way to manage this situation. And so I think we have to learn those lessons of the past and stop just putting people in prison and look at ways of genuine rehabilitation so that there can be a positive outcome for the person and the community. It's an interesting term, rehabilitation. I mean, we use it, I think the general public uses it in the sense of getting people on track, but of course it means returning to your old self. So in some ways the prisons do rehabilitate people in an ironic, paradoxical way. They come out better crooks or bigger crooks. One guy I had a long involvement with over the years, he tragically died a year or so ago, was Bernie Matthews, and I think Gary Jubelin interviewed him. Bernie was a prisoner at Parramatta Jail, a hard man, a multi-recidivist prisoner, And I learned a lot from him back in the day and more recently, you know, he kept in touch with me over the years. He went back to jail, came out of jail, but he said to me, jails are the universities of higher crime. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, boys' homes are like high school and the way that kids were treated in boys' homes then almost set them up for jail. They go to jail, they spend their time in the yards, they learn about bigger and better crimes, jail talk is stinky thinky and they come out, and this is the other tranche to this, they come out with very little, you know, a week's new start, 
nowhere to go, no money, nobody will employ them, very few people will employ them, and nobody wants to know them except the mates that they've made in jail. So inevitably the sort of confluence of the peer group dynamics, no cash, and factor into the equation now drug and alcohol abuse, it's almost inevitable with a lot of them that they're going to go back to jail, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in Australia, we're building more prisons, aren't we? We're sending more people to prison. We're seeing that pattern across other countries as well. But it's not the same everywhere. I was reading recently about the Netherlands and the fact that their prisons are emptying. And apparently they did a survey in 2016 on capacity and they really focused on sentencing with an increase in shorter sentences and looking at how the crimes were impacting on society. And through that work, they've really reduced the prison population. So they're closing their prisons, they're selling off the buildings and it's having a huge impact. So whilst countries like Australia are building more prisons, countries like the Netherlands are actually closing their prisons because they have a different approach and it is more about reintegration into the community, understanding the impacts of the crimes, and less about that purely punitive, lock them up, you know, tough on crime rhetoric. And the other thing they've done, and we touched on this in our discussion with Andrew, is that they have decriminalised a lot of drugs, like in Portugal. If you decriminalise drug use and possession of drugs and people don't go to jail, then those resources financially can then be redirected into community health programs, community corrections programs. Mental health programs, domestic violence programs. All of that with, you know, an end target, obviously, of reducing crime and recidivism. And it, it does take a lateral kind of approach, I think, and courage. And Australia, of course, was founded as a penal colony. We have a very punitive attitude towards everything when you think about it. So just to give you an idea of how much impact this is, th these changes have had in the Netherlands, a few years ago when the study was undertaken, they had just 61 prisoners per 100,000 people. Now, 100,000 people is a standard measure of these types of studies. So per 100,000 in the general population, 61 of them were prisoners, right? So to give you a comparison, that's one of the, the lowest in Europe. But if we compare that directly to the United States, it has 10 times that number. So around 655 people per 100,000. Now, even if you're listening to this and you think, well, you know, those people who committed crimes, they should be in prison. Fine. Putting that aside, what about the resources that go into that? What about the funds that are being directed to that that aren't going to those other programs? Well, it's huge. What's the stat for Australia per 100,000? It'd be way higher than the Netherlands and, you know, probably not as high as the US, but who knows? The US is the highest. Well, a lot of that's to do with incarceration of African-Americans and drug wars and all that sort of stuff. So in terms of you know, how many people in prison, the US has got the highest, but let's look at Australia. So the Australian Bureau of Statistics has released some data on this. So this relates to June 2020 to 2021, which is the most recent data that's available. So the Australian prison population actually increased by 5% over that time. So we went from 205 prisoners per 100,000 in the adult population to 214. So that's obviously significantly more than in Holland, obviously a lot less than in the US, but still, and that rate is going up. So whatever we're doing, we're doing it wrong, aren't we? We are. There is an enormous cost benefit to the community to keep people out of jail. I don't know what the current uh, cost per day per prisoner in Australia is. It's very high. 
Now, if you can keep one person or 10 people out of jail for a year, you're paying for a psychologist in jail, you're paying for some programs to be established in communities and so on. We set up a day in jail program in Parramatta Jail. It was based on the railway straight jail deterrent scheme for juveniles, except we didn't try and scare them. It was experiential learning. And these were juvenile offenders who were one step away from adult custody. Uh, In other words, if the program didn't exist, they in all likelihood would have gone to jail. And they would spend a day in prison as a prisoner. They'd be psychologically evaluated. They would be kept physically and mentally safe. They would spend the morning doing... They would first be met and received like a prisoner. They'd put on a prison uniform. They'd meet the prison governor. And then they would spend the morning doing some meaningless jail task. And back in those days, prisoners were locked up over lunchtime for a couple of hours. You know, damp or hot cells, depending on the time of year at Parramatta and serve the meal of the day, which was atrocious, generally speaking. And in the afternoon, they would be counselled by four prisoners who I'd selected out of a pool. I'd trained them up in counselling techniques and I would sit in on the session and supervise it. And they would say, look, you know, you're here today because because back in the day that's what they did for stealing cars. I started stealing cars. I'm now doing life for murder. I started stealing cars and then I did armed robberies and I'm doing 22 years. It resonated with these kids. What resonated more was the follow-up in the community. So we we wouldn't just release them at the end of the day. There would be regular follow-up by probation and parole and others. Well, the New South Wales Bureau of Crime Statistics and Research evaluated it. It had something like 60% success rate where success was judged by whether they went back to court again, not whether they went to jail. Highly effective. In purely cost-benefit terms, we saved the state, arguably back even then millions of dollars over the period of the program, but we saved lives, we saved victims. There should be far more money and resources put into prevention not cure because certainly jail isn't a cure for these problems. And you've got to remember, for everyone who is incarcerated... They have a family, you know, on the outside. So they aren't the only one who's impacted. And as I said, you know, obviously people, there has to be a punishment element for these, for for crimes. But, you know, there are children at home that are, are missing out on having parents there. And I think if you can rehabilitate and break the cycle, so parents aren't coming out of prison, reoffending and going back in, and children aren't being left without their parents for, you know, basically sometimes their entire lives, their their parent may have been in prison and then you have social learning, you know, that becomes normalised for the child going into prison to see a parent becomes normalised and you have this cycle of acceptance. And it becomes systemic then, generational to generational to generational. And the harm is generational. Mm. Of these, of these situations where people are going into prison and, you know, that repetitive recidivist activity. When you were working in prison, I mean, we know what the stats say about the types of people who are more likely to end up in prison and more likely to repeat offend. But what was your experience, the people you were meeting, you know, what kind of demographic were they? Well, Parramatta, it was a long time ago, it was a multi-recidivist maximum security jail generally considered to be an end-of-the-line jail. So the typical demographic was they were doing 10 to 15 years. They weren't there for parking fines. But their histories were similar to other people who hadn't progressed that far. 
might have been in a medium security or a low security jail, as kids, juvenile offenders, went to boys' homes, some notorious boys' homes back in the day, uh, Tamworth, Mount Penang, where they'd be beaten and brutalised and all the rest of it. Common themes of no support in the community, as you've mentioned, uh, an absence of um, role models, paternal figures, maternal figures in some cases, or if dad's in jail, a string of stepfathers who are just as bad. And so the social learning that you described was very real. And it would then progress from petty crime to more serious crime to very serious crime uh, resulting in lengthy terms of imprisonment. I think those dynamics are still applicable. Uh, The new mix is drugs in the community, of course, which can accelerate the learning curve. So back in the day, you wouldn't see young kids in jail for murder necessarily. These days, I mean, I'm assessing when I say young kids, men in their 20s who have killed people over drug turf and uh, gang wars and that sort of thing. So, And a lot of that's fueled by um, drug use and in particular ice, crystal methamphetamine, it's a bad drug. And we know recidivism is a huge problem, diverting people away from incarceration in the first place because that can, you know, people become institutionalised and we need to have better mechanisms in place to stop people going to prison. But what happens, do you think, you know, when they come out, the stigma that's associated with having been to prison, is that a conversation that we need to have? Because if we make it harder for people who have been incarcerated to reintegrate, surely we are then as a society almost pushing them back into that recidivist activity because we're preventing them from from becoming members of society that are having a positive influence because we're rejecting them. I think that's true at a theoretical level and probably at a practical level, but the problem is that a lot of these people come out of jail worse. And you can understand in, you know, some circumstances why people are not prepared to give them a job. Crimes of violence, fraud and all the rest of it. And how you cut through that is demonstrating that during the course of their incarceration, they've undertaken treatment programs, they have supports, protective factors in the community. You may not be able to reintegrate them into the family because it was generally about two years of jail time and their wives would leave them. So it makes it very hard from that perspective. But an absence of drug use, treatment, very important. We've discussed this uh, over the years and currently remorse, empathy and insight. I mean, if there are positive indicators for change, then obviously as a society, we should give them that opportunity through employment, the capacity to work, earn money. You know, employment's much more than going to work. It's about self-esteem. It's structured during the day. It's interacting with others that may not be inclined towards criminal activity. With active time, they're less likely to be involved in drug use with ongoing support and supervision. So it's multidimensional. But I, I think obviously we can be doing a lot more and it gets back to helping these people if they want to be helped in prison by providing programs and programs in the community and then they need to comply with them. And I think reintegration as well, successful reintegration is also about the resources that the individual has when they come out. And I'm not just talking about financial resources, but also that. Do they have stable housing? Do they have family, friends, support networks that are going to help them reintegrate? Because for the people who do have 
that and they do have, you know, money. and So they're not worrying about where their next meal is coming from, if they're going to be sleeping on the streets, etc. It's going to be easier for them to reintegrate than those people who are literally coming out with no support, no family, living hand to mouth. They're almost again encouraged back into systems. So I think what we, well, what we know we're seeing is those who are disadvantaged are more likely to end up incarcerated. So low SES, low education, they may have mental or physical health problems, etc. And so they are more likely to be in the criminal justice system in the first place. And then when they get out, they have less resources to support themselves to stop you know that cycle continuing. So it's kind of piling injustice on injustice. It's so self-evident and logical the way you've articulated it. But I think there's also an attitude in the in the community that once a crim, always a crim. And the punishment could should extend beyond the incarceration. You can't trust these people. And so there needs to be better education about these dynamics because if it doesn't change, then nothing else will change in terms of recidivism. And yet, look at the Netherlands, as you were describing, you know, a lateral approach to it all. They're emptying the jails. I think ultimately, you know, my observations over a long period of time is that people in jail, like most people, just want to be accepted. They make a mistake. They want to work. They want to have positive lives in the community if given the opportunity. But when they're constantly rejected then inevitably they're going to drift into a, a very bad mindset and associate with similar people. And so they talk each other up and they commit serious crimes, they go back to jail and it's really just a, a circular door argument, isn't it? Absolutely. and I think, But I think that rehabilitation is absolutely possible, um, including, I think, self-rehabilitation. So I think Andrew's story was particularly interesting. He's chosen a unique method, I think, of expressing his rehabilitation. You know, we don't see many people come out and become, you know, TikTokers and start doing stand-up comedy to talk about their experiences. But obviously that works for him. And his life has taken like a 180, hasn't it, a couple of times now. But he's back on that positive path. But again, he had the resources. He was given a job straight out. He had friends and family. Not not all of his friends, obviously you were saying about not all of them stuck by him, but he had he had those support networks. And I think that's given him the mental space to find a way forward for himself. And pretty healthy self-esteem. That's a good thing. And he came from a background of success. And privilege. And privilege. So, uh, I mean, it's a good working example of what we're talking about. Here's a guy who's committed, you know, arguably serious crimes referable to drugs and so on, goes to jail but comes out with the support mechanisms we're describing and is currently kicking big goals. A lot of people don't have that benefit and they fall over. And he's kicking big goals, I think, not just for himself, but also as an inspiration for other people who who may need that, who, who may not see a way forward. And obviously, they're not all going to become stand-up comedians. That's not for everybody. But it's just a way of finding a positive outlet, a way of processing what's happened, what you've been through, and how to move forward. And I think Andrew is a great example of rehabilitation when it works. He's learned his lesson. He's now doing something positive, is inspiring and helping other people in a unique way, but he's reaching people. I agree. And again, social media. I mean, it's a very powerful method of communicating with the masses, isn't it? And I would hope people would be inspired by his story. I wish him success in every way. I think he's, uh, he's turned it around very successfully. 
And I do think that if we are going to reduce the prison population in Australia, we have to start thinking more laterally. And, you know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. Look at the Dutch model. It's working in other countries. Portugal. Portugal. What is the reason why we can't start implementing some of those changes here? Because that is in everyone's interest if we can reduce the prison population. So, I, you know, I just... Obviously, it's it's not an easy fix. There isn't one easy fix. But we've seen these alternative methods that are less punitive working in other countries. And I would dearly love to see that here, especially in the youth justice space, breaking those cycles of deprivation before they become hardened adult offenders. And then we're kind of reducing the population and doing society great good at the same time. I agree. That demographic is a high priority target for sure. But we are doing things. We, in little ways, we're doing things. I think the courts are less punitive these days in terms of possession of drugs, particularly for young people. I've assessed, you know, many, many, many young people picked up around Sydney carrying a bag of cocaine. It's almost an industry. You know, these are intelligent people, a lot of them. They're doing university degrees. Mm-hmm. Their whole career and future is really in the abyss, you know. If they are convicted... They may not get a job and they're in their 20s. So I think the courts are now recognising that people deserve a chance and they shouldn't necessarily get a criminal record for a first offence. They get a field attendance notice and I think that's a big start. Less people think I'm arguing for a total decriminalisation of drugs. I'm not. I think people who bring drugs into Australia, the profiteers, the carpetbaggers in the drug industry deserve the punishments that they get, which are big punishments because they're really fueling the problem. But the young kids on the street, they're in many ways victims, but it can ruin their lives. And so I think a more lateral approach, an intelligent approach, most of them you'll never see again if they've given the opportunity not to come back. So diversionary programs away from custodial so they learn the lessons and don't don't end up incarcerated and, you know, that cycle begins. Without carrying the stigma for the rest of their lives of having a drug conviction. And all that means in terms of jobs, self-esteem, people you associate with, it's multifactorial. But I think that group, as you describe it, the adolescent, the early adults, that's the one we should be targeting most. Yeah, and doing something about the youth justice problem, you know, seeing more and more kids, young people on remand, you know, who may then be released without actually a conviction at the end of the day, but they've already spent significant amount of times on remand, incarcerated. And I think that we do so much damage psychologically to these young people that we we need a total overhaul of that system. They're brutalised by it and they're traumatised by it. They develop all sorts of symptoms and... Some of the things they witness in the prison yards, I mean, Andrew spoke about what he witnessed. They don't come back from that. They can't, you can't unsee this type of stuff. And so it travels with them for life and then potentially sets up other problems with anxiety, depression, substance use and so on. I think we've got a long way to go. I think there's, but there's certainly things that can be done to to reduce the population 
and to divert people away from from the criminal justice system in the first place in terms of incarceration. I think that's what we should be really looking to. So when we hear over the election, tough on crime, tough on crime, tough on crime, that is not the way forward. Well, it's just rhetoric. It's going to take courage by governments to say this is not working, we need a different approach. I think it'll happen, but maybe not in my lifetime. Oh, I hope you're wrong. I'd like to see I'd like to see some change. Me too. That's all we have for today. Thank you for listening to Motive and Method. And remember, if you are enjoying this episode and the series, you can recommend us to friends and family. You can leave a review or subscribe to our feed and channel. And you can always set an alert so you know when a new episode has become available. I'm Tim Watson Munro. And I'm Xanthi Mallet. And we'll be back next week with a new episode. Mm-hmm.